Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So if you guys have your Bibles, please take them out and turn with me to um, Romans chapter number 3. Romans 3, we're going to be reading verses uh, 1 through 8 today. What a blessing that uh, the new song is. It's one that I heard uh, earlier this year, and it really just resonates with me. I can't get through verse 3 <laughs> without uh, without tearing up but <clears throat> but in that it expresses our hope all glory be to Christ our king and so with that let us come before him and pray for the reading and the preaching of his word indeed lord all glory be to Christ our king that is the reason why we are gathered here lord father we are gathered here to worship you and to glorify you and to make much of Jesus Christ. That is our primary purpose for gathering. And yes, there are benefits for us, Lord, that we are encouraged as in our time together. We are, we are uplifted because of it, Lord. We are edified by the truth of your word. But the primary focus and the reason why we are all gathered here is because you were worthy of our glory. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified today in our actions and our words and our attitudes, Lord. And I pray, Lord God, that as your word goes out, that our hearts would be attentive and ready to receive what it is that you would have us to hear. And that, Lord, our minds and hearts would be changed and shaped by it, Lord. That it would have its effect in us, Lord. That you would perfect in us obedience, that you would bring us more and more into holiness, Lord, that you would help us to see the glorious nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you, Lord, then are glorified in all of that. We give you all the praise and all the honor and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged." But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could, ju- could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord. The, uh, the late theologian and uh, pastor A.W. Pink once wrote, 
God is true. His word of promise is sure. In all his relations with his people, God is faithful. He may be safely relied on. No one has ever yet really trusted in him in vain. We find this precious truth expressed almost everywhere in the scriptures for his people need to know that faithfulness is an essential part of the divine character. This is the basis of our confidence in him. There's been an image that continues to make its way around social media, especially among those who call themselves Christians. And it's this one here. It is entitled, The First Day in Heaven. And this is actually just one variation of the the same theme. In fact, there are many different versions of this exact same image. There's a version where, where the female is a black female. And there's another version where instead of a man, a woman smiling and, and hugging, there's a, a man, right? And there are different versions of different color of hair. There are versions of different age groups of people, some older, some younger. There are versions with different shadings of colors. But no matter what the version is, all of these express the exact same emotion, right? Joy. But beyond the emotion, this image communicates a theology of what it's like when we finally step into eternity and encounter Christ. And the idea conveyed is that one day when a person finally makes their way into heaven, they're going to run and throw themselves into the arms of Jesus like they would a friend or a lover that they have not seen for many, many years. And there will be tears of joy running in their face and they will laugh and they will shout. It's really a quite moving image. And I want you to understand, I, I, I understand and get the motivation behind the artwork. I really do. I understand the intentions of the artist. I understand why people like this. I know why that I understand why people are moved by it. I understand why people will share it on social media. I sympathize with the emotion behind this image because I too love Jesus. I long desperately to see his face. I long to be with him as we sang today. How long, O Lord? So understand the emotions that this piece of art appeals to. And at one point in my own life, I might have even shared this image online, or I might have even made my temporary profile picture. But for all of the emotions and all of the good intentions behind this image, the truth is there's something wrong with this picture. Right? And understand, it's not my aim to be negative. Right? It's not my, it's not my aim to take something that's pleasant and make it unpleasant. It is my aim to walk in the truth, and the truth is there's something fundamentally wrong with this image and the theology that is behind this image. You see, the problem is this image conveys the human response toward another human, which would be fine if Jesus were simply a man. But he is not. He is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh, fully man and also fully divine. He is not a man only. He is the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. He is the eternal, sovereign, reigning king. 
though he calls you friend, he is not like your pal from grade school. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, not your homeboy. You see, I believe that this picture inadvertently, accidentally, and unintentionally is a visual representation of one of the greatest problems that's facing the entire world. The worldview behind this picture, the theology behind this picture is one of the greatest problems facing the world. And I'm not overstating that. One of the greatest problems facing the world is not that people don't believe in God. I mean, that is a problem. But that's not the greatest problem facing the world. One of the greatest problems facing the world, rather, is the truth that so many who claim to believe in God don't understand or recognize the holiness of God. That there is no reverence for God. That there is no fear of God. There's something in mankind that wants to close the gap between God and man, either by making him like us or making us like him. There's something in us that wants to relate to God on our own terms rather than on his and so we either bring God down to our own level or we elevate ourselves to his. And I'm not saying that people don't love God. That's not, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying, right, what I'm saying is mankind's attempt to relate to God and understand God typically starts from a human point of view. That is the underlying theology of this image, that we would run up to Jesus and hug him rather than falling down on our faces in awe, in wonder, in reverence, in worship Him. This is also the root of almost every heretical and unbiblical view of God. Right? This is why so many people in people groups attempt to seek to understand God in human terms. Every biblical view of God that attempts to understand God from a humanistic, humanistic point of view has this same error. That's why some people really just refuse to acknowledge the Trinity because, because they want to apply human understanding and categories to things like father and son. They cannot understand that the way those things apply to God is different than it is to humanity. And so they just say that the Trinity can't possibly be because it doesn't make sense to me. This is also why some groups of people say that God was once like us, that he was perfect and worked really hard and became God, that he was not God eternally, and that somehow, some way, then if we will do the same thing and become obedient, we can be like him as well. There's very little distinction between who God is and who we are. The gap is very narrow. This is why some people think that God is limited, that, that, that there are things outside of God's control. That, that God wants to do good things, but there's just some things that he can't. I even heard a pastor talk about a natural disaster and said, ah, you just got to understand, this wasn't God's will. That, that God wanted to prevent that, but couldn't. What are you saying? Right? That there are things beyond God's sovereignty, like the forces of nature and human free will. There are also some who, who want to think that God won't punish sin because of their 
personal relationship with themselves. They think to themselves that God won't send anybody to hell. I mean, how can a loving God punish sin for eternity? I can't imagine that. And they assume that since they can't imagine that, then God must be like them in their emotions. And so they believe that's who God is. And the greatest problem facing the world is that so many of those who claim to believe in God don't recognize the holiness of God. That God is different from us. And not a little bit different, but vastly different from us. In fact, let's just contrast this image with the text of Scripture. If you wouldn't mind, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. It's in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 6, we'll be there real briefly. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And he said, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Notice the contrast, two vastly different responses to encountering God. And notice this is the prophet of God, the man that God hand-selected to represent him. And this is how he behaves in the presence of God. He reacts with awe. He reacts with reverence and even fear. And this is how we will respond to Christ in heaven. We will fall on our faces and worship him. We will see his glory. And in that, we will recognize there are inadequacies and we will see his holiness and it will prompt us to understand how undeserving we are to be in his presence. That's what it will be like. But pastor, come on. You're not even talking about the same things. I mean, Isaiah, that's the Old Testament. Come on. That's an image of God on his throne, right? Jesus, Jesus hadn't come yet. He hadn't really come in human form. You're just being negative. We're going to see Jesus in heaven and it will be different than Isaiah's experience. Okay? Turn with, me, turn with me to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 12. See, the Apostle John, a very close friend of Jesus, not just one of the 12 disciples, but one of the three of Jesus' closest friends in all of human history, right, in the flesh. This is what he says when he sees Jesus in heaven. 
beginning in verse 12, it reads, I almost was starting to read the wrong page. Thinking this is not lining up with what I... It reads this. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, like one, one like a son of man, clothed in a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs on his head were white, like the white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And his right hand held seven stars. His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the, the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the response of John the friend of Jesus, the one that Jesus said, hey, take care of my mama. That John fell on his face and worshiped the Lord. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I had the keys of death and Hades. This is what will be like for us when we finally meet Christ face to face. Because though Christ became a man, he still remains fully God. And he is holy, holy, holy. He is transcendent. The transcendent, uncreated God. He is the self-existing, all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful God that is the source of all other things. He is far and away different from us in ways that we can't even possibly fathom. But because there's something in mankind there is a tendency for us to refuse to acknowledge that. Kent Hughes in his commentary says that God of Scripture is majestic, transcendent, and beyond total human comprehension. And the, believer, and, and the unbelievers always wrongly close the gap between God and man, either by bringing God down or raising man up. That is the theology behind the image. As loving as that image might be, try to be. That's the theology that's behind it. That is the theology of just about every religion that's outside of Orthodox Christianity. And that is the theology behind the so-called progressive movement in Christianity as they seek to undermine the inerrancy of scriptures and the, the, and the supremacy of Christ. And, and it was a response to that theology that caused, that caused Paul to spend so much time in his letter to the Romans to unpack the indictment of humanity in the first three chapters. You see, because Paul was, was seeking to destroy this false theology. He was trying to help the, his readers understand that God is holy, that God is completely righteous, that God is completely just. And the standard that he has for himself and for humanity is nothing short of perfection. And he's trying to help us to see that mankind falls terribly short of that standard. And, and not, not all, and, and not only that, but mankind was deserving of God's wrath. No matter how religious mankind was. No matter how he claimed a special status before God because of his national birthright or his ethnicity. 
Paul begins his gospel with the bad news so that the readers will finally acknowledge the truth of their condition so they can see their helplessness and their need of a Savior. Paul spends so much time on this because human, the human tendency is to try to put man and God somewhere on a somewhat equal footing. And that's the issue that we will see here that Paul addresses in the text today. In fact, turn with me to Romans chapter 3 in verse 1, and Paul begins with the question, What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And if you remember the context here, in Romans 1, Paul indicts the Gentiles because of their sin and says that they are without excuse, that they know God, but they refuse to honor God, and so God has given them over to their sin. And then in chapter 2, Paul indicts the Jews who think that they're better off than the Gentiles. Because though they know God's law, they still are just as guilty of violating that law and God's perfect standards as the Gentiles. But the Jews believe that they are different simply because they're Jews. That they're right with God simply because of their ethnicity. They were God's people, they thought, simply because of their nationality and their culture. And this theology that Paul, this is the theology that Paul seeks to dismantle in Romans chapter 2 and 3. And he does this by engaging in a literary device, as we talked about, which is called a diatribe. This is where Paul is just basically having a two-sided conversation with an imaginary person that represents a very real person or a real group of people, right? It's kind of a back-and-forth conversation. And in this text, Paul is, is having a conversation with a Jewish person who's struggling to understand how he can be on the same footing as the Gentiles and how the Jewish heritage doesn't automatically make him superior to those dirty, worldly, godless Gentile people. Hence the reason for the question. What advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Because Paul has made it clear that possessing the law of God and receiving the sign of the covenant through circumcision doesn't make a person automatically right with God as they supposed. Those things, as we talked about, are just merely outward symbols. And their culture, and their heritage, and their nationality, and their religious observances, and their history, though those things are important, those things are not what reconcile them to God. Those things don't change the fact that they are sinners under God's judgment. In fact, all of these things make their issue worse. Why? Because not only are they sinners, but they are then hypocrites because they know, they know better, which is what Paul unpacked in Romans chapter 2. They know the law, but they don't obey the law. They, they teach others, but they don't teach themselves. They judge others and condemn them for what they commit, but they also do the very same things that they're judging others for. They are hypocrites. You see, Paul removes all of their excuses and all their rationale for thinking that their status as Jews is what's going to save them. And so the question this Jewish person would naturally ask then would be this one. What advantage then is there to be a Jew? In other words, if what you're saying is true, Paul, then what's the point? Why should I be Jewish then? What's the value of being part of God's covenant people? What's the point of these traditions and this history? What's the point of being part of this group of people that you had supposedly set apart from the world? What's the advantage of the Jew? That's the question being asked here, and Paul's response is much in every way. 
Paul's response is actually emphatic. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, Paul says the great, there's, there's great value in being Jewish. And it seems that he's going to begin a long list of advantages, but ends up only listing one thing before his imaginary opponent interrupts with another question. Actually, Paul comes back to this issue in Romans chapter 9. In fact, I've turned your attention there. In, in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 4, Paul comes back to this and says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, and to them belongs the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is right. There are many, many, many advantages for the Jews and for being Jewish. But in this text, he only touches on one of these things. And it's actually a very important advantage, one that we would ourselves at times overlook. So the question the Jews would, would be asking is, what advantage does, it, does the Jew have? Right? It, it's, right? I'm not being saved for being Jewish. If I'm, if I'm not right with God by having the sign of covenant in my body, what's the upside then? And Paul says that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, it's easy for us to, to look at that and go, okay, and then move on. It's easy to read past this little complicated section of text on our way to the good news because we're really actually very close to the good news now. It's easy to kind of just kind of get in a hurry and just get past it. Okay, go. we understand everybody's condemned and move on. But Paul is actually making a super important statement here because the word for oracles means divine utterances. Paul is saying that the Jews have the divine utterances of God, or in other words, they are the word of God. That is one of the most important advantages the Jews had over everybody else in the world. They had the word of God. And not just the Mosaic Law, right? He's talking about all of the Scriptures. He's talking about the entire Old Testament. He's talking about the wisdom literature. He's talking about Psalms and Proverbs. He's also talking about the writings of the, promise, the prophets that were pro promising the coming Messiah. The Jews were given and entrusted with the very utterances, the very Word of God. And, and some of you might be thinking, okay... So what? How is that such a big advantage? But in the words of Paul, much in every way. Kent Hughes in his commentary again writes, he says, having the written self-revelation of God is of immense advantage to the Jew. It remains so for us today. And then he goes on, he actually gives us two reasons why it's important. Number one, the first reason, the first reason why that it's an advantage is because, because it gives us a description of, of God's eternal nature, it reveals to us who God is. God on His own is telling us what He is like. And this is a super vital, important point for the Jews and for us. Because as we saw in Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation 1, God is holy. In fact, the Bible doesn't say that He's just holy. It says that He is holy, 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 which is a Jewish expression to say that God is holy to the most infinite possible of being holy. By the way, that's why the sign is right above the door as you walk in here, is to remind you of the holiness of God, that God is infinitely holy, which means He is infinitely different from us. 
Because what the Jews had failed, and many of us failed to remember, is that God is holy, which means He is not like us. The differences between God and man are more than staggering. The differences between God and man are mind-blowing. God is completely eternal. He has no end or a beginning. God has always existed and will always exist. This is a proposition that we still can't even fully grasp. We, on the other hand, are unlike that, different than that. We are temporal. We, at some point in time, began to exist, and at some point in time, we will all die. And our time on this earth is short, 100 years maybe. And even that is but a nanosecond, not even that, in the breadth of eternity. God is also self-existing, another idea that we don't have a basis to relate to. Meaning God is independent of all things but himself. That he owes his existence to nothing outside of himself. Nothing created him. Nothing sustains him. He needs nothing. And he depends on nothing. We, on the other hand, are not self-existent. We are completely dependent. We are an effect of lots of different causes all the way back to the beginning. We are dependent on things we can't even fathom that we're dependent upon. We're dependent upon food and water and air and our parents and our, and our environment to, to be sustained for our existence. And most importantly, everything, including us, is dependent fully on God. God also is all-knowing. We know very little. Even the smartest of us, I promise you, if we really knew some things, the last two years would be different than they actually were. God is everywhere present in the universe. Again, something that we can't even fathom and understand. He is with us here as we worship right now. Simultaneously, He is with our brothers and sisters across the track of the Boron Bible Church. And He is also with our brothers and sisters around the corner at the Assembly of God. But He is also simultaneously with our brothers in Pakistan and our brothers and sisters in Kenya, all around the world, all at the same time, fully present. But here we are, restricted in time and space. All we know and can see is what we have around us right now. And even with our technology, the limits of what we can actually see and experience are still very limited. Right? All of us, I think, at times would wish we could be at two places at once. But we cannot be. God is all-powerful. And He can do whatever He wills to do. But even the strong of us cannot even control whether we're going to wake up tomorrow or not. You realize that, right? I don't care how much you take care of yourself. I don't care how awesome you, you know, you, you know, your health is. I don't care how secure your house is. I don't care about any of that stuff. Not any of us has the actual power to ensure that tomorrow morning you're going to wake up. None of us has the ability to control the weather. Because you know how I know that? Because the wind wouldn't blow so much and bore on if you, if, if you could. Right? Because I don't think very many of us really like it very much. We have no control of the economy. In fact, you don't even have hardly any control of your own kids. I mean, you like to think that you do, but you really don't. God is not the same as us. Not to mention he's the, the observable universe is 96 billion light years across. And God is infinitely greater than that. You can't even relate to that, that size. 
Right. While we're so small, you can't even see our planet when you look at the Milky Way from the outside. You realize that? That you can't see planet Earth when you are outside the Milky Way looking in. And you can't, even if you get close enough to, to the, the Earth's orbit, you still can't even see people. It shows the drastic difference between God and man. We are not on the same level. And that is, brothers and sisters, really the tip of the iceberg. The truth is God is so different from us that he would be unknowable if he didn't condescend to reveal himself to us. We wouldn't know God if he didn't make himself known. Now, God has revealed himself to mankind in nature. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, nature bears witness to who God is. It makes mankind responsible and accountable. God has clearly shown himself in nature, but God has more clearly revealed himself in his word. This is called special revelation. And this is, and, and, and his word clearly makes known his nature, his character, like his sovereignty, his aseity, his holiness, his transcendence, his eminence, but also his goodness and his grace. Because most importantly, in his word, God reveals how we can be reconciled to him, how we can be saved. God's revealing himself directly to mankind in the written word is a humongous blessing. And that's an understatement of epic proportions. It's a huge advantage. Number two, the second advantage for having the oracles of God as, as we have written is, is we have a description, a written description of the nature and the purpose of mankind. It is through the scriptures that we see all of mankind has intrinsic value because he was created in the image of God. That we can all then look at all of humanity and realize that they are owed a certain dignity and respect simply because they are made in the image of God and that we are not better than them because of that. But it's also through the scriptures we can clearly see how corrupt we have become and how, un, how mankind is unable to save himself and how mankind ultimately needs to be saved. Having the written word of God is a great advantage to us and God by his grace has selected this obstinate group of people, the Jews, to be the recipients and the stewards of this divine revelation. And so it was great value to them if they would just recognize it. What a great privilege, but also what a great responsibility. Because the Jews should have known then, having the revelation of God, they should have known that circumcision was not going to be enough to get them across the line. They should have known that simply memorizing the law was not going to save them. They should have known that God's wrath abides on hypocrisy. They should have known that, that God's people are not simply descendants of Abraham, but are those who have faith in the promise that God's people are His elect at all times. They should have known that God and mankind were not on the same level. But they didn't know this. They failed to see the purpose of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. They failed to see their worldview had become so man-centered rather than God-centered. In fact, that's what we see in, in, in the following questions is a very high view of mankind, particularly the Jewish man, and a relatively low view of God. 
So they ask, what benefit is there for being a Jew? And Paul says, much in every way, and says the Jews were given the gracious gift and advantage of having the Word of God. But before Paul can continue on with a list of advantages, he interrupts himself as though this person asking the question, you know, was interrupting him. And he, and he asks, well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? In other words, if some Jews were unfaithful, does that mean God is also unfaithful? Now, we stand here in the 21st century, and we go, that's a weird question. That doesn't seem to add up. It seems that, that, that I don't follow what's, what, what's being said here. How does the Jews actually being unfaithful make God unfaithful in their minds? But what we need to realize is that when the Jews were confronted with the truth, that they were no better off than the Gentiles, and that the law and circumcision guarantee neither their Jewish immunity to God's judgment, nor their Jewish identity as, God, as the people of God, their response was not to look at themselves and acknowledge the truth. Their response was to question God's covenant with them. Their response was to question God's promises to them. Their response was to question God's own character. That's what self-centered people do, by the way. In other words, they begin to blame God instead of accepting responsibility. You see, the question that they were asking is, if, you, if what you say is true, that the Jews are not better off than the Gentiles, and we are judged by the same standard, and we are under the same wrath as those dirty, godless people, then God's word must have failed, and God himself must be unfaithful. That's where they were coming from. That's how they saw the gospel. That is the essence of their response. Rather than looking inwardly at their own condition, they turn and they blame God, which, by the way, is the natural human response. The natural human response is to blame God. It is, it's God's fault. It's not my fault. It's God's fault. Tell me you haven't heard this. Well, God made me this way. I mean, that, that is the cry of, of, of the 21st century, right? Of all people who don't want to repent of any of their sin. Well, God made me this way. It's God's fault. This is an elevated view of mankind that mankind instinctively has of himself in a low view of God. This is the self, this is the deluded, self-centered view that God somehow owes us something. That there is something in me that is deserving of God doing good things for me not recognizing that the truth, not, not recognizing the truth about who we really are. The Jews had the word, but they didn't understand the word. Otherwise, they would have realized that we are all sinners before a holy, righteous, and just God and deserving nothing from God but His wrath. That's all we deserve. That's all we deserve. If you want to talk about deserved. And all of us, are daily recipients of God's overwhelming grace. What we don't deserve. The fact that we woke up today is a gift from God that we don't deserve. Simply put, as Vodi Bakum says, God should have killed me last night in my sleep for the things I said and did and thought yesterday. 
The fact that we continue to take our next breath is a gracious gift from the hand of God himself. The food that we eat, the clothes that we wear, the love of our families, the warmth of a heater, the stability of an economy, all of these gracious gifts are from a loving God who does so and gives them to us, not because we deserve them, but in spite of the fact that we don't deserve them. He owes us nothing. But the Jews neglected to see this. The Jews had developed a sense of self-entitlement. By the way, if you're there, something that's common to man is this sense that we are entitled to something. Do we have to talk about where we are in our country with entitlement? I mean, they were Jews for crying out loud. They were afforded this special status before God, which was true. But they forgot that this itself was a gracious gift they didn't deserve. But they believed that somehow God owed them. And then if God, if, if they themselves had failed like the Gentiles did, then it was God's fault that they failed. What if some were unfaithful? Does their, un, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And Paul answers, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul immediately destroys their claim that their failure is somehow God's responsibility. Right? And he does so not with philosophy and not with human reasoning, but he actually takes them right back to the Scriptures, the Scriptures that they possessed, the Scriptures that they were entrusted to them, the Scriptures that they should have known. Paul cites Psalm 51 in order to correct their error. And what's interesting about Psalm 51 was that it was written by David after he was confronted in his sin with Bathsheba. And the thing that we need to realize about this is David, when he was confronted with this sin, he didn't attempt to defend himself and blame anyone else. And he certainly didn't try to blame God. Instead, he understood God's righteous nature and repented of his sin and then begged God for mercy. In fact, David writes, beginning in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Notice he's not blaming anyone. He's claiming it. I sinned. It's mine. It belongs to me. And then he goes, look at what he says in verse 3. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. I'm not, I'm, I'm not blind to it. Against you, you only have I sinned and have done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be, and notice this, so that you may be justified. This is what Paul's quoting. So you may be justified in your words and blameless in, in your judgment. David knew that he broke God's command and he knew that God was right to bring judgment upon him. He knew it. And he knew that he rightly deserved God's wrath and judgment. And he knew his status as a king and he knew his status as a Jew afforded him no special privilege here. That None of that meant anything. He was still going to be judged for his own actions. And so he didn't blame God for his failure, even though he was the man of God after God's own heart, even though he was selected by God to be the king of Israel, even though that he was the one God selected to represent him as God's leader of his nation. He failed, or he didn't blame God. Instead, he took responsibility for his own sin and affirmed God's justice and his righteousness to punish him. And he affirmed God's goodness, recognizing that God, 
Not his special status as a Jew was his only hope. So he continues and, and asks, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He said, he's admitting, I was a sinner from birth. Behold, you delight in the truth in my inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And then he comes and he starts to make his, his beg for mercy. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Not because I'm deserving of it. There's none of that here. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Do for me the things I can't do for myself. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, which, by the way, Lord, is your prerogative to do. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is the psalm that Paul has in mind. David didn't blame God. And in Romans chapter 3, Paul is saying that the failure of the Jews is not God's fault, but rather their own. And God's righteousness is not denied by their failure, but rather His righteousness is actually confirmed by their condemnation for their failures. That God's righteousness is upheld by Him judging their unrighteousness. To which the Jews, not seeing the point that Paul's making here, ask the question, but if, you're unri- if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to afflict wrath on us? And then he says, making sure that, he, that everybody understands, it's not his argument. He says, I speak in a human way. In other words... So you say God's righteousness is actually confirmed by our unrighteousness. Well, doesn't that mean that since our failure more clearly reveals the righteousness of God to the world, that He ought to be grateful to us then for this service that we are rendering to Him? By our failure, we're making God look really good, is the point that they're making. And isn't isn't God unfair then for punishing us, for making Him look good? Believe me, humans have all kinds of strange rationales for all kinds of things. Aren't we doing God a favor by demonstrating His justice through our injustice? That is the essence of the question. Why is God going to punish us for making Him look so good? The more unrighteous the criminal, the more righteous the judge appears. Isn't isn't it unfair to punish for God to punish us for something that's an advantage to Him? That's the argument. Now, We all recognize it's a silly argument. But that's what happens when you have an elevated view of mankind and a low view of God. You can get into all kinds of distorted thinking. You actually believe that you can do God a favor. You actually believe that you can be in a position where God owes you something. Now, we might not think that God shouldn't punish us for our wrong, excuse me, we might not think that God shouldn't punish us for our wrongdoings because it makes Him look good, but there, are, but we can fall into the same type of thinking in a different way. I think we all can fall prey to this sense that God somehow is indebted to us somewhere. Like, think about this, when bad things happen to those that we love, or maybe us, we look to heaven and we ask, why, God? Why did this happen? Why me? Now, those are relevant questions, but then we don't end there. We don't stop with the question. We go, but I serve you, Lord. I pray all the time. 
Why is this happening? I pray to you all the time. I read my Bible every day. I mean, I live for your kingdom. I stop cussing and flipping everybody off when I drive. I share the hope of Christ with everyone I meet to. I pay a full tithe. Come on, Lord. Why me? Why not the dude over there that's on crack? There's something in us that believes that what we do for God causes God in some sense. We don't say it out loud that way, but we still feel that way, that some way, somehow, because of what we do for God, that He's indebted to us. That somehow that we're doing God a favor that ought to be repaid. And you know what I'm talking about. We've all, at some point, fallen into this thinking. Why me? I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. We think that God should bless us because we are Christians. We think that, that our prayers should be answered because we follow Christ. We think that God should, should supernaturally just continually work out miracle after miracle anytime we call because we have faith in Christ. In fact, there are people who believe that, that if you have enough faith in God, this is the prosperity gospel, but if you have enough faith in God and ask for something, especially if you ask in the right way, then God is duty-bound to give it to you, that He owes it to you. But hear me. God owes us nothing but His judgment and His wrath. There's nothing you can do to cause God to be in your debt or to make God obligated to you. In fact, that's why we're saved by grace through faith. Because the concept of grace completely negates any sense at all of obligation. Because if there's an obligation, then it's not grace. You understand that? When you pay your bills to your light company, it is not grace on your behalf. It's an obligation. But when you offer to help someone who can't repay you, right? that's an act of grace. But if you feel like you're obligated to do it, it's not grace. This, by the way, is why the argument against God's sovereignty and salvation fails so miserably. Because people say all the time about God's election and salvation that it's just not fair. That's just not a fair view of God. I mean, God is obligated to give everybody the same grace. If there's any obligation at all, then there's not grace at all. The only thing that God is obligated to give us is His justice. All of us are undeserving. God's grace means he's good enough to do the things for us that, we, that he does in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. We cannot do God a favor and we cannot obligate God to pardon us or to do something good for us. And God certainly doesn't owe it to the Jews to go easy on them in their sin because it makes God look good. In fact, Paul says, by no means, for how can, could God judge the world? See, Paul makes it clear that... that just how low the view of God the Jews had at this point, that they could think of God in these hypocritical human terms, that God could actually act in partiality, favoring some people over others. Paul just said God shows no partiality. But Paul, demand, but Paul demands, how can God's righteous be righteous and judge the world if he didn't, if he, if he let you slide in your sin? That's his point, is how in the world can God be righteous before the world if he lets you slide? You see, Paul's view of God is elevated and understands that God isn't mostly good. 
that God isn't like us, that God is perfect in all of his attributes. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. Paul understands that God's righteous demands, right? This righteousness demands that he himself is the epitome of mere righteousness, that he himself must be above reproach. In fact, the idea of righteousness has its identity in the character and the nature of God. Righteousness is righteousness because righteousness is from God. And so God cannot stoop to their level. And so Paul's response is if, you let, if God lets you slide in your sin because you're Jewish, how is he going to be able to justif- justifiably judge the world that you yourself agree should be judged? What a blasphemous idea. Then Paul's imaginary opponent presses the issue even further and asks, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As he says, some slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. The person continues to ask, if being bad makes God look good, then why not just be bad? I mean, the ends justify the means, right? Which, by the way, is another human argument. If God's goodness is magnified by my failure, then me failing is glorifying to God, so God shouldn't punish me because I'm making God look better. Again, what we see in this argument stems from a low view of God and a high view of mankind, and Paul doesn't even address it. Notice he doesn't even carry on his his response, but he says that those who think in such terms are rightly condemned. Those who who think that God's value and man's value are on the same level are justifiably condemned for that heresy because we are not the same as God. We were created in His image, but He is not like us. He is infinitely above us. In fact, I want to wrap up with this last text here. Turn back with me to Isaiah, but Isaiah chapter 55. We'll be reading verses 6 through 9. The Jews should have clearly had this in mind when they were thinking in these terms. Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 6. The Lord says, Seek the Lord with, while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to, the, to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And here's the, the part that they should have bore in mind, that this is the part that we should continually bear in mind, that God in his own word says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Right? And he says right here, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, the universe is 96 billion light years across. How much further can the heavens be above the earth? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The Jews, like so many who claim to be Christians today, have an elevated sense of self and reduced sense of God, thinking that God owes them something and that God can be manipulated by behaving a certain way, thinking that God somehow ought to be grateful for them being who they are. By the way, it's it's a very common trap for people to fall into. 
There are Christian ministers who recall having to repent of the attitude of, man, God is really lucky to have me. I'm such a good, you know, worker. God is lucky. <laughs> oh, Lord. Paul says they are rightly condemned because the Word of God, right, that they, they were blessed with, paints a completely different picture of God. And so they ought to have known better. So what do we do with this then? We're seeing that Paul is basically continually just destroying this argument of self-righteousness, right? And he's almost finished with that argument. But what do we do with this particular text here? I mean, obviously, we're not Jewish. And praise the Lord that, you know, um, we don't have that particular heritage to convince us that we're somehow superior to everyone else. In fact, as a Christian, if there's one thing you ought to, to realize is that you're not better than everyone else, right? But uh, there's three things I want to share with you as we wrap up. And, and, and number one, we, like the Jews, have been given a wonderful, gracious gift by God in His Word. I don't think that we fully appreciate that. How many of you have at least one Bible? How many of you have at least three? Okay. Five. Ten. See what I'm saying? Right. What I'm saying is, is, is we live in a place... I mean, there, there are people today that, that, that weep when they finally can have their own scriptures. There are people who die to have possession of their own scriptures. We have these scriptures. We ought to value the fact that we have the Word of God. We ought to cherish the Word of God. We ought to revere it. Right? We understand that this is God's revelation to us that we ought to humbly study it. We ought to seek to conform our lives to it. The Word of God is the revelation of God about who He is and who we are in light of who He is and what God has done for us in spite of who we are. It's a story of redemption, right? Conceived in eternity by the Father, purchased by Christ in the past and applied to us by the Spirit in the present. It is the grounds of, on which we build our church. This is the final authority for all faith and doctrine and life. It is the anchor of our hope that God thought enough of us to provide for us a clear understanding of what we need to know about Him to be reconciled to Him. We ought to love it and cherish it and value it and study it and memorize it and continually meditate upon it. We ought to be people of the book. And we ought to not settle for superficial understandings, but go deep. Secondly, we need to remember what God owes us. And that is nothing. God owes us nothing but His justice and His wrath. I think that's just the starting point that we should all just continually have. Right? When we fall down on our face and think, God, why'd you let me fall into this? Go, wait a minute, wait a minute. He didn't owe me anything except to, to punish me for what for my sin. That's the truth that we should settle in our hearts. We cannot do God any favors that He would actually then have to give us one back. In fact, Paul says later on, he says in, in Romans 11, for who, can, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift, gift to him that he might 
be repaid. God is never obligated to do anything for you. He doesn't owe you your life. He doesn't owe you happiness. He doesn't owe you joy. He doesn't owe you understanding. You are a creature that He created. You are the clay. He is the potter and can do whatever He wants with you. And to make things worse is we've rebelled against Him all of our lives. And the only thing He owes us then is payment for iniquities. But in spite of what He owes us, let us then rejoice in what God has given us. Because God is good. God is good. I don't think we see it enough. I don't think we feel it enough. I don't think we express it enough that God, in spite of us, has been overwhelmingly gracious to all of us, believer and unbeliever alike. The fact that we have the gift of friendship is a gift from the hand of God. The fact that food tastes amazing is a gift from God. The fact that hugs feel so good and they are the right thing at certain times in our lives is a gift from God. The fact that someone that you know and love can just be sitting in the same room with you and look at you and comfort you and give you exactly what you need without saying a word is a gift from God. Children are a gift from God. Grandchildren are a gift from God. Puppy dogs are a gift from God. Cats, not so much. But God has overwhelmingly poured out His gifts upon us, even the unbeliever. But then, but then, out of no obligation, but by His overwhelming grace, He decided to choose a people through all time and all languages and tongues to be His people. And He chose to have mercy on them, and He chose to give them His Word, and He chose to send the Holy Spirit to them to change their hearts, and He chose to strengthen them so they can exercise faith in them. That Jesus Christ came in the world to do all the things that we couldn't do for ourselves is, a, is an act of grace that we will never understand this side of heaven. If you need reason to carry on today, think of Christ suffering in hunger. Think of Christ's body being so tired that he has to fall that he falls asleep in the middle of a storm. Think of Christ sweating drops of blood as he willfully obeys the will of the Father. Think of Christ crying out on the cross as he drinks down the full cup of God's wrath for us. He paid the price. It wasn't because you deserved it. But in spite of the fact, that should change everything. It should change your worldview. It should change your attitude. It should change your posture before a holy, righteous, and just God. That Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, out of his love and compassion and grace for you, decided to save you. Now, that might make sense to you, but it makes no sense to me. Because I know who this guy is. I know what this guy has done. I could never consciously now think, God, you owe me something. Given me more than I could possibly imagine. And so my invitation 
All I can do now is declare that goodness and then call you to do what God called me to do. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Take your hope off of yourself and put it completely upon God, trusting that He is good and will do for you all that He's promised to do. His promises are sure. Let every man be a liar, but God be true. We pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.